0: Would you open the Bible, the Word of God, to Galatians chapter 3? If you didn't bring one, there are some on the back tables, or you can look over the shoulder of your neighbor, pull out your phone, just make sure you only go to the Bible app. (laughs) Galatians chapter 3, and uh, let's read, beginning in verse 15, and this is Paul, continuing to talk about how we are saved by God's grace through faith and not through any works that we could ever do. So he says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is christ this is what i mean the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by god so as to make the promise void for if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise but god gave it to abraham by a promise father thank you for your promise your covenant your word lord i pray that as we study your word that you would grow a faith in us that saves, and Lord, that continues to grow in sanctification for the glory of our great Savior in His name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have been studying Galatians and how we can be sure, how we need to be sure that this gospel is the gospel. It's the true one, the only one that saves. You know, we've asked this before with all of the other gospels out there, with all the other truth out there, what, what is our certainty based on? That this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ from the scriptures, that this is the only one. Is it just because a man named Paul said so in the first century? Is that why we believe? Or or just because somebody's standing in front of other people with, with an open Bible? Is that why we believe what the gospel says? What is our trust in this gospel based on? Because our eternity is at stake. Where we will go forever is at stake, and not just later on forever, but now. Our lives now hang in the balance, and so we better make sure we have the right one, right? We've got to make sure that we believe the right gospel. So why have we believed this one? I mean, look at all of those who have tried the wrong ways. People long ago worshipped Baal. Others worshipped Zeus long ago with with many other gods. The Egyptians worshipped Amun-Ra, again, along with others. And people today worship Allah or Buddha, and plenty of people worship themselves. And, right? and, and how do they do that? Well, they try to please and obey the desires of their flesh. And what have they tried? Well, drugs, alcohol, pursuing riches, trying to get famous. Um, they've sacrificed a, a lot for that. They've obeyed those lusts, and they, and they give, and they give. But none of that has achieved salvation. None of it's been fulfilling in any real sense. It's all proven to be emptiness. False. But just providing other options as false doesn't mean this is the right one. Why should we trust this gospel? This one presented in Galatians, in the Scriptures. What's our trust based on? Well, it's based on the promise of God. God's covenant, His Word. That's what Paul teaches the Galatians. That's what he's teaching us this morning. It's as, it's as if he's saying, don't take my word for it. <laughs> Go to the promise of God. You cannot earn salvation by obeying. You cannot be good enough. You cannot deserve to have your sins forgiven. To have an eternity with God in his glory, you must believe through faith in Jesus Christ so that you repent of your sin and you love him. And initially, that seems so uncomfortable to us, right? I mean, I got to do something. I'm supposed to do something, right? I mean, I'm supposed to contribute in some way. I have to have a part in this so that I can be sure that it's done, right? How many of us are like that? If you want something done, you better do it yourself. (laughs) I got to get this done. I got to get this done right. But our surety, our certainty is not in ourselves, in the law, in obeying it. It's in God's covenant. So, in one sense it 's what paul 's been saying all along, but it 's clarifying even more for us what our faith is in or who our faith is in and so he leads us to the truth in four parts in this paragraph. He begins with an example, and in number one, we see this first part in verse fifteen that man 's covenants cannot be adjusted man 's covenants Cannot be adjusted. There's a possible word game going on here um, that, that Paul is using. The, the word for covenant here is also the word for testament. Like if, if you were going to leave your last uh, will, your, your testament, for what you would have done when you're gone. And people have argued and debated, is it one, is it the other? Um, it, it, it seems relatively clear for a while that he's talking about covenants. And until he comes to verse 18 and he says inheritance, and then, well, maybe it's Testament. And this is, again, where we talked about way back at the beginning of our study of Galatians that people argue again over, was this northern Galatia, southern Galatia? And, and which, depending on which one, well, is, was he talking about Roman rules or Greek rules for living wills and testaments and, and, and all of those? They just get carried away. They, they miss the whole point. And so we're not going to, to get into any of that. The, the point is, when a covenant or a testament is ratified, it stands. It's not Roman or Greek or any particular civilization. In any civilization, there is a, when, when people make an agreement, there's a level of trust that they're going to stand by their agreement, right? That, that both parties will stand by their agreement. And, of course, there are exceptions, but that's why they're called exceptions. Because the standard, the, the norm, the rule, is that people are going to do what they said they would do in a covenant or in a testament. And so the point that Paul is setting up here is is he's making what we call an a fortiori argument or a fortiori argument. What does that mean? It means from lesser to greater, from lesser to greater. So if people stand by their word and covenants, how much more will God do it? If mankind, the lesser, can stand by a covenant and and do what they said, how much more will the great God, the the one who's greater by far, stand by the promises in his own word? That's what Paul's saying here. This is the example of mankind. Not only that, but these agreements that people make, when you get to that point that both sides have agreed, it's because both sides have met together and they've either argued or debated they've haggled, they've compromised to negotiate an agreement. And so each side has to give a little, each side gets a little, and they agree and it's okay, and then they sign on it, and they make it a a covenant. But this covenant is from God, and it's one-sided. It's unilateral. So if you would, turn with me back to Genesis 15 so we can see this. We We can trace this together in Genesis 15, that this is something that God said he would do Full stop, that's it, period. God would do it. Now, as you're turning back to Genesis 15, in Genesis 12, God had call, already come to Abram, and he had said, you're it, let's go. Abram did, he started going. God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. He said in, in, back in chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here in chapter 15 of Genesis... The covenant is ratified, sealed by God, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God said this, Abram believed this. He had faith in God's word. Twice it says, The word of the Lord came to Abram. This is what he said. And that's what Abram believed. It was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't anything Abram came up with. It wasn't his idea at all. It was God who said this. And so Abram believed it. And so Abram asks in verse 8, He says, How can I know? That's the question we started with. How can we be so sure? Why should I place all my trust and faith in this? Be sure and certain that the land is going to be his, that all that God had just said. God says, well, bring the animals for sacrifice for the ratifying of the covenant. So standard procedure was you would cut the animals in half. You'd split them in two. And you would lay the halves in two rows and the people who would make this covenant, cut the covenant, would walk between the pieces. You would say, so so may this happen to me. May I be split in two if I don't fulfill my obligations in this covenant. But as the sun was going down here in Genesis 15, verse 12 says that a deep sleep fell on Abram and dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. While God said, 430 years would come for Abram's offspring to be in another land, but then he would judge that land. Abram's offspring would return to the land, and all that God had said would still happen. Even when it won't look like it for more than 400 years, it's not going to look like it, but God's word will come to pass. And then as verse 17 happens, the, the sun goes down and a smoking fire pot and flaming torch representing the Lord passed between the pieces without Abram. No Abram. Because this was God's unilateral covenant. This was God saying, this is what will happen. The word of the Lord came to Abram, and this is what's going to happen. It doesn't have anything to do with you, Abram, except that you're you're going to benefit from this. You're, You're going to receive the blessings from God, and the blessings will come through you. There was no negotiation. There was no compromise, no haggling, nothing that Abram needed to do, nothing that his offspring needed to do. God said he would do it, and that's that. So it's not like God said, I'll only do this if you do that. It was God said, I'm going to do this, and that's that, right? God set up this covenant, and he sealed it. So if mankind will stand by his agreement, how much more will God? The, the agreement, the covenant that he made all by himself. Galatians 3.15 says, nothing will annul it. Nothing will be added to it since it has been ratified. Ratified means to invest it with force, to validate it. It's a binding agreement. Nothing will annul, nothing can be added to it. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what the next two verses in Galatians are all about, adding to it or annulling it. So let's look at number two. You don't have to turn back to Galatians if you you don't want to, because we're going to stay here in Genesis for a few more minutes. But the second part in our notes comes from Galatians 3, verse 16, that God's covenant cannot be added to. He said it in verse 15 as that example. And now he's going to show it to us. He's going to to prove this to us. God's covenant cannot be added to. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, when we read Genesis 15, both God and Abram, whose, whose name will be changed to Abraham soon, both God and Abram used the word offspring in the singular but remember in verse 5 of Genesis 15, God said that Abram's offspring would be as numerous as the stars, right? So even though the noun offspring is singular, it's understood to be a collective singular. It's a whole group of people. It's a lot of people involved, right? So why does Paul make such a big deal out of this then? Why is Paul saying, well, there's offsprings and there's offspring? And it's not the S, it's the, it's the, the one, Well, it's because it's been understood all along that it was not all of Abraham's offspring, in the plural sense, that would inherit the promises of God, that would have that blessing from God, and especially to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Well, how do we know that? If you're still in Genesis, turn ahead to to Genesis chapter 17. Paul was setting up that this was the point all along, way back in Genesis in chapter 17. Now again, in in chapter 15, we saw that Eliezer of Damascus, Abram's servant, was not going to be included. Eliezer could have been adopted. He could have received all of the inheritance of of Abram and and all of the promises, but God said no. Here in chapter 17, Abram is saying, well, God, I'm not getting any younger. (laughs) When's this going to happen? Look at chapter 17, verse 1 of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, that El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. Well, we already knew that from Genesis 15, right? But let's keep going. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he's going to be a multitude of nations, but the covenant is still between God and Abraham. Now verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you come, uh, make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and, and I, again, this is God, all of the things that God's going to do, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, but here's, here it is in verse 7, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So all of these things that God is going to do, I will do this and I will do this, and it's going to be between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring, but not all of the offspring, not all of the multitude. You say, well... How do we know that? Look at verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? (laughs) Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, "Oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. And listen, I will establish my covenant with him. As an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, here already we've seen that the the covenant was between God and Abraham, but it was going to pass between Abraham and God down to Isaac and God. And it was not going to be Ishmael, it was not going to be Eliezer, it was not going to be anyone besides Abraham and then Isaac. And it's going to pass from Isaac to his offspring. So it's not going to be fulfilled with Abraham, it's not going to be fulfilled in Isaac, it's going to pass on from from them. For that matter, Abraham's other sons, you remember in chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham had sons with with Keturah, and none of them were included, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. If you've memorized those, then you're doing very well. (laughs) But I think you don't have to do that. Paul Paul taught this again in Romans nine. Not all are children of Abraham because they're a, his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Paul Paul pointed back to this in Romans nine. So if you would keep here in Genesis, skip ahead to chapter twenty-six. Chapter twenty-six and verse two, and God is speaking to Isaac. And he's he's going to tell Isaac, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. This is God speaking. He says to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there it is again, with the offspring that will be very many, and they will have the land, But then a separate statement that says his offspring would bring the blessing to all the families of the earth. But it wasn't all of Isaac's offspring either, was it? Esau would be excluded while Jacob would be selected. Chapter 28, verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder or the steps that that Jacob saw. And God said to him in chapter 28, Verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Now here it is again. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so it didn't end with Jacob. It had to continue through his offspring. But again, not even all of Jacob's offspring. Judah was the one. In chapter 49, Jacob blesses each of his sons, and it's Judah who the others are going to praise and bow down before. Judah is the one that will have the scepter, the, the rod of rule and, and royalty, and the people shall obey him. So while all the sons of Jacob would be included in, in the, the blessing, Judah alone would be the chosen line to continue the specific offspring. So the great man Moses wasn't it. Even though he led the people in the Exodus out of Egypt, he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. And he wasn't in the line of Judah. So who was it, who was it going to be and who would it continue through? Well, if you're here in the Old Testament, let's jump up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we can see this continuation of God's covenant and his blessing and his promise and his word that's being fulfilled. In 2 Samuel 7, it's David who is in the line of Judah, and God had made a covenant with, with David here in, in 2 Samuel 7 that flows out of this Abrahamic covenant from God. So in Second Samuel 7, um, we'll start in verse 9. This is, this is God speaking. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Again, all of the things that God is going to do and only God can do. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. whom I put away from before you. God says, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was God's covenant with David. But it wasn't going to be just David. It was going to be to his offspring. And that was immediately going to be Solomon. And Solomon was going to be allowed to build God a house. But then it wasn't going to stop with Solomon because it was going to be an everlasting throne. And Solomon was not going to be everlasting on the throne. So the specific offspring, the one that God had in mind wasn't Abraham, and it wasn't Isaac or Jacob, it wasn't Moses or David or Solomon, yet the offspring of Jacob as Israel, all of them, the the offsprings, were included in the promise, the covenant of the land, seed and blessings. They were included, but they were not the fulfillment. See, from the beginning, it was known all along that the fulfillment of everything that God had in mind would be in the form of one specific offspring. Because it was way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He was talking directly to the serpent and the woman. But then God said, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then God said, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the offspring, the ones that came from both the serpent and the woman, would be at enmity, but the ultimate battle would be between the one offspring of the woman, one who would come later, and the serpent still himself. And he would bruise the serpent's head while the serpent would only bruise his heel, but the champion would win the victory over the serpent, and he would come as the offspring of Eve and all the way down through Abraham, and, and all of the earth would be blessed. He would come through Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David, and Solomon. He would be described in Isaiah as the suffering servant. He was foretold by all of the prophets in the Old Testament that he was still to come. And brothers and sisters, this is why it's so exciting when we read John's gospel in chapter 1, and verse 45, where, where Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. That's why it's so exciting. That's not just a throwaway statement. and something that John just threw in there to fill up some space. This is why Matthew's gospel begins the whole gospel in chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus to show from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and Solomon all the way down tracing his lineage to show Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. The promises were made. The covenant was made by God, and they've stood firm and true through thousands of years. They've not been added to. It's still just this one offspring. Paul identifies who it is in verse 16 of Galatians 3. It's Christ, it's Jesus. Maybe the argument was at the time the Judaizers were saying, Look, we're God's people. We're chosen people, and we claim to be the fulfillment of all the blessings and the covenants of God to the world. And we can prove that because we live by the law, and we've started that by being circumcised. But that wasn't right. The sign of the covenant was true and good. The sign of the covenant, circumcision, was a sign. It was was good, but it was the sign of the covenant that was being fulfilled through the people of Israel, specifically and finally fulfilled in the one person, Jesus the Christ. God's promises and God's covenant is not fulfilled when you work really hard. When you do everything you can to earn God's blessing and to try to get to heaven by your own efforts, you can't. You don't add to God's covenant. You can't get yourself into God's covenant. It stands as God stated it, as God intended it. We cannot add to it. It stands without being added to. We can't do it through works, through our own efforts, or through anything we do at all. God already included us when we believe through faith in Jesus Christ. We've already been included in the covenant of God by His grace. What a blessing it is to believe in the covenant of God that has remained sure and steady through thousands of years. But not only has God's covenant not been added to, Number three, and we can go back to Galatians. We're, we're finished with, with uh, Genesis and, and, and 2 Samuel. But number three, God's covenant cannot be annulled, verse 17 says. God's covenant can't be added to. It cannot be annulled in verse 17. Nothing can annul That, that means to deprive of authority, to cancel. can't cancel God's covenant. The law that came 430 years does not render it void. Void means powerless or or useless. The issue here is timing and priority in the authority. God said something 2,000 years ago. Does he say something different now? He he doesn't say anything different now. Now, this is not what other people believe. In, In other religions, this is not what's taught. In Islam, there is a belief called the law of abrogation. The law of abrogation says if a more recent statement conflicts with a previous one, throw out the old one. Let's go with the the newest one, the more recent one. The later one supersedes or cancels out the older one. For instance, Muslims were supposed to pray facing Jerusalem originally, but the law of abrogation said, never mind, forget that, now you're going to face Mecca to pray. Originally, there wasn't supposed to be any compulsion toward any other religion to convert The law of abrogation came and said there's a new commandment, get rid of the old one, force people to worship Allah. Uh, The Latter-day Saints believe in what is also, what's called continual revelation. And it's the same idea, that God can give a new revelation that supersedes old revelation. And that's part of what the Book of Mormon is supposed to do. It's supposed to correct where we've misunderstood and mistranslated the Bible. In fact, the Book of Mormon records their God calling people fools who think we only need the Bible. So God's truth, does it change? Does it get superseded? Does it get canceled out because something newer came along? The word of God, God's truth is true forever. It's never superseded. It's never replaced. It's never added to, as we saw, and it's never annulled. Isaiah 40 says, the word of the Lord remains for how long? forever. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter, and he doesn't misquote it. He said, the word of the Lord remains forever. The truth about the word of God came through Balaam to Balak in Numbers 23. He says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he not spoken and will he not fulfill it? Yes. The answer is yes. He has said it and he will do it. Again, it's not that God said, I'll do this if you do that. No, God said this and that's that. His word is true and his word is final. Nothing can annul it, nothing cancels it or supersedes it. In Hebrews 6, the writer set out to prove a similar point for a different purpose. The purpose in Hebrews 6 is so that we can trust, we can increase our certainty uh, our hope in God's salvation, rather than finding a different way, which is what Galatians is, is, is helping us with. But in, in Hebrews 6, he says, when people make an oath or a promise, they swear, they promise that they're going to do it by swearing to something greater than themselves, right? I'm not going to swear by myself. I'll swear by something greater than me. And so when they reference the oath or the promise, it ends any dispute. What did you swear to do? What was your oath? What was your promise? Then you have to do it, Right? That that just ends the, the dispute. So verse 17 of Hebrews 6 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, God gave us the promise, and he swore it by the greatest. There was no one greater than him. He, he couldn't say, I swear by someone greater than me. There's no one greater than God. So he swore by himself. that He's unchanging, and he cannot lie. What a great God. What a great promise that he gives. That's guaranteed by him, by his word, by himself. His covenant his true. His promise is true. So, I mean... We know, we understand when God says something, he doesn't have to promise. He doesn't have to swear. He doesn't have to make an oath. He doesn't have to make a covenant. God says it and that's it, right? But for our sake, he says, to show more convincingly, he made that covenant. He made that promise. In Romans 11:29, Paul makes the general declaration referring to God's promises to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled, and to us who live in the church, that that nothing has been replaced, nothing's been superseded, nothing's been annulled in God's promises. He says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or some of you would prefer irrevocable. (laughs) In either way, in either case, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to change God's word. That's why it's so important that Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill Jesus is the fulfillment. And here's what it boils down to. God has promised us, brothers and sisters, eternal life in Jesus Christ. He has promised us that he has already blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. God has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. God has promised that Jesus will return for us. God has made very many and very precious promises to us that we can hold fast to unless God can change his mind or lie. If God can change his mind or if he can lie, which one of those promises should we not believe? Which one should we hold back from? Which one should we not live in the hope and the surety and the certainty of if God can change his mind or if he can lie? Which one should we not believe? because it's not just our eternity that's affected if God's promises aren't going to come true. It's our life daily. (laughs) It's everyday life. What hope do I have that any of the drama that happens, that any of the tragedy that happens in life is going to have any point unless God's working through it as he promised? If his promises can be annulled, what hope do we have? Where should our faith be? God's given us the promises. He's given us his covenant and his word so that we'll have faith in what he has said and will do. God made the promise and the covenant long before he gave the law. And his covenant was not superseded by the law. So don't look to the law as your hope, especially your ability to hold down to it or to obey it. But that leads us to the final, port, the, the final part here in Galatians 3 that number four, God's covenant cannot be affected by the law at all. It can't be affected at all by it. Here's what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We see the promise of God called the inheritance here, and that is what gets passed down to your offspring. The covenant or promise to the offspring in a Testament is given as an inheritance, not obedience to the law, right? It's not the way testaments work. It's not the way a will works. You can have all of my stuff when I'm gone if you... Obey well enough, right? <laughs> if you work at it hard enough. And even if you were able to place that in your will or a testament, it doesn't factor in here because, as we saw, God's covenant was unilateral. God said it would happen. That was it. God has all responsibility to perform it. There was nothing Abraham could do. As we saw in Genesis 15, when the covenant was cut, only the representation of God went through the pieces to ratify that covenant. There were no stipulations. So what the Judaizers were teaching was wrong. You cannot inherit the promise of God through obedience to the law, as it says here. If it it comes to the law, then it no longer comes by promise. It was never actually based on a promise. If you could just earn it, then it's just a law. This plus this equals that, right? When you do this, you get that. That's what happens. It, it It was like they were teaching that God said he would give it to them, but then he withheld it and he put a dangling carrot in front of them to lead them to make them obey and, and to make them do what he wanted them to do. But we just saw God's covenant stands. The word of the Lord remains forever. And we've seen previously here in Galatians, particularly verse 10 of chapter 3, we can't follow the law. We can't obey. So what a terrible place that would be. If, if I have to earn the covenant, if I have to earn God's promises, it would be a horrible place a much better place to be where i can believe because of god's word that's always true it never fades it never fails it always happens just as god said if i have to do it if i think if i have to think that i can do whatever it takes to get to the law even if i thought that i could obey even if i even if i rationalized every sin away there would still be a question i would always wonder have i done enough (laughs) have i gotten there But God's promise is completely sure, it's trustworthy, it's real. The reality is, no, I've never done enough. I never could do enough, no one has. If there's another way to get the inheritance, by obeying the law, then what Paul is saying here is that the original promise of God is void, it's meaningless. But God's promises, his covenant, even his simple word, just when God says it, it cannot be annulled, it cannot be added to, just as we said. we Can't do that with a man-made covenant? Certainly cannot do that with a God-made covenant so the law has nothing to do with God's covenant it doesn't affect the covenant at all so you're saying well then what was the whole point of the law what's the reason for it you'll have to come back next week (laughs) or just start reading in verse 19 because that's what Paul asks he anticipates that question well then what's the point in the law that's verse 19 well does it have any use at all that happens after that also He anticipates those questions. But the inheritance has been promised by God and inheritance has been used throughout the New Testament to describe our salvation, the salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ. It's passed down to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. You've got a series of references there that you can study. You can see how inheritance is used for for salvation uh, correct, if you would please, the Hebrews reference. It's not Hebrews 9.5, it's Hebrews 9.15. That was my mistake in passing that along. But since we're addressing that one, here's what that one says. Since we won't read all of them, here's what that one says. Therefore he, Jesus, is mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We were all condemned before, but under Jesus, a new covenant is here, and he's the mediator of this so that we receive the inheritance of eternal life in Jesus. What a covenant, what a promise from God. What does all this mean to us? Well, as we said, most of us are not Judaizers walking around telling everybody, you must obey the law. You've got to obey every part of the law. Now, there are some out there that do teach that. I worked with a man who wore uh, the tassels on his clothing, a tzitzit, and, and he would say you've got, he, he would abide by the dietary regulations of the Old Testament. He would. You've got to obey the law. There are people out there. There are people, there are men who send their wives and daughters out of the home once a month because they're not clean. They send them out of the house. There are people who do think that they've got to obey uh, their idea of what God's law is. And if if that is you, if if you're that way, you've got to understand you cannot add obedience to the covenant of God. The law of God is not added to the covenant. They're two different things, and we'll be seeing it later. But it is faith alone in Jesus Christ and not our works. We cannot fulfill the law. He already has. But the principle is the same for all of us. Even if we're not walking around wearing the tzitzit, we cannot add to what God has promised in his word. We cannot replace it with anything else. Our hope is in the Lord and in his word. So our application point there, the blank is fully. Trust fully in God's covenant, in his word. Now we've talked about this, but has it taken hold? Are we doing this? is it is a reality for us in our everyday life let me ask when you sin when you mess up what do you do do you get down do you feel like giving up like you know this thing this Christianity thing it's just not working it's not working for me God's covenant with you is not dependent on your works oh (laughs) I don't have to give up I don't have to run away. I don't have to stop praying. That, listen, that's been a, a temptation in my life. Well, I've messed up. I can't, I can't possibly pray. I can't possibly show up to church. I can't, I can't you know, who am I? I can't lead my family in, in a devotion. I can't pray to the Lord. No, you don't give up because you've messed up. We fess up, right? We confess because God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. So we pray to him, we come to the the church, we we read his word, we do these things, not because we're hypocrites, he already knew we were going to mess up, and we already know we're going to mess up. So we don't hide it, we don't pretend, we confess it. Let's look at it from the other side. If you don't feel like giving up, why don't you? I mean, do you think that you're so perfect that you've got a hold on this, and you're holding on so tightly because of all of the goodness that you do, all of the good thoughts and all of the good actions? Do you think that you fulfilled the law? Listen, I've caught myself thinking this way without realizing it, without knowing it. I'm doing pretty good, right? I'm going to church. I'm giving. I'm, you know, serving in this way. You know, I've got my list. Look at all the things that I'm doing, and look how... Look how much I've got here. Our assurance cannot be on ourselves holding on to Jesus through our good works. And it's so hard to tell that you're in that place until you do mess up. And then you go, oh, I should just quit. I should get so hard. It's, there's so much and I just can't keep, I can't keep it up. You're right. We can't keep it up in our own strength, in our own abilities, and, and holding on through our good works. Sometimes God... Brings that into our life so that we stumble and fall. Not, not that he's tempting us, but that there's that test there and we fall for it because we were holding on ourselves. We were trying to do it ourselves. Confess that, turn away from it in love for Jesus. We can trust that he forgives, that he has forgiven, that he will forgive. There's no making up for it, there's no undoing it, right? You acknowledge it, you confess, you cry out to him in faith, and he keeps you in Jesus because it's his word. He said it, he's going to do it. Well, that's specific times in our life. What about the whole? What what about your life and the reason for what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you say? Why do you say what you say? What's the motivation? What determines what you're going to do every day? What drives you? Do you do things because of guilt? Well, I feel like I need to. I feel like I should. You know, I feel guilty when I don't do this. Or, you know, I feel guilty because I need to do that. The only thing that guilt should motivate us to do is repent. That's the only action that guilt should motivate, repentance. Guilt should not be the driving force in our life. Are you driven by necessity? Well, somebody needs to do it. I guess it might as well be me. (laughs) We get that Elijah complex. I'm the only one left that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And then uh, you know, Elijah just exhausts himself, right? i got to keep this up. i got to keep doing it. Somebody, it's got to be somebody. And then Elijah just completely reaches the end of himself. And over and over, it's God sustaining him. God has his people, not just one person. <laughs> so necessity. You have your responsibilities. Others have their responsibilities. Don't try to do everybody's. Don't be driven by just plain necessity or by guilt. Maybe you're driven by what other people think, either negatively or positively. You know, what would they think of me if I did that? What would they think of me if I didn't go and do that? They might think something not good about me. Or, or I should do this because people sure would be appreciative if I did. <laughs> people sure would be thankful if I did we talked about Galatians 1.10. If we're trying to please people, we're not a servant of God. We're serving man. What drives many of us is, is comfort. You know, I, well, I'll do that because I can, because it's, you know, it's, it's easy. I can take care of that. I'm not doing that. That's too hard. That's too much work. I'm not doing any of that. Will this make me feel better? Will, will it make me happy? Uh, we can convince ourselves that something sinful is good because, well, it's making me happy. It's, it's okay. It's all right. We're just justifying ourselves living in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. What should drive us? Those, those are things that, that too often drive many of us to do certain things and to keep doing certain things guilt, um, what other people might think, our own comfort, necessity. What should drive us is the love of our God, the love of our Savior when we love Him and we believe in His promises because we're not trying to earn those promises anymore. He's already given them, and we believe, so out of thankfulness and out of love, we worship by obeying him. And we want to. We strive to obey. We look for ways to obey because of our love. See, you can tell the difference when you're relying on the law when you want the do's and the don'ts so you can check the boxes and say, I've done it, I've done it. I didn't do that, didn't do that. I wasn't supposed to. I'm good to go. I'm resting in my works of the law. Instead of I'm resting in the grace and the promise and the covenant of my great God, so I do what he wants for his glory because I love him. You can see disobedience to the Lord, that it boils down really in our hearts to not believing his word. We don't believe in him or his word. It's either because you don't trust it and you think you can do whatever you want, or you've trusted in it, and you desire to trust God's promises, but your flesh fights against you. It draws you away. It wants to do. It wants to work. And it fights against you through your heart, your mind, your will, your thoughts, your affections, your desires. It's the law that's trying to pull us back. It's the works of the law that are trying to pull us back. And it's not trusting in God's promises and His Word. So the application here again is trust fully in His Word. Don't trust in yourself. Don't, don't let these other motivations drive you and, and determine what you do in your life and, and what you're not going to do and, and how hard you're going to work at them. Just the love of God. Well, now we're going to transition into our time to the Lord's Supper to observe the table of our great Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray and then we'll begin that process. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. God, thank you that you have given us your very precious promises, the the covenants in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of your covenant. God, thank you for the faith to believe. Thank you, Lord, for granting the gift of repentance to turn away from that sin. Father, I pray that every one of us in the room and everyone listening or watching would do the same, Father. We would give up ourselves, relying on ourselves. God, that we would deny ourselves, that we'd take up our cross and follow Jesus. Lord, that we would be His disciples because He is Lord. He is our Savior. He is our only Savior and our only hope. And, Father, the hope that we have in him is sure and certain because you've given us your covenant, your promise, your word. Father, I pray that we would depend fully on what you have said. Lord, that we would grow in that. And, God, that you would be glorified by taking a people, Lord, who can't trust and who can't work and who can't love and can't worship and, God, transforming us into those who do all of that because of your salvation of us, because you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Father, we praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.